I will shoulder my PV and I will go where I will go to Muskegon, some pleasure to find, and leave my own Annie, my true lover behind. Welcome to Muskegon History and Beyond with the Lakeshore Museum Center. Before we begin today, a word of warning. Today's episode is going to talk about the darker side of Muskegon history and is going to be covering topics not suitable for children. So please listen to this episode accordingly. On today's podcast, we are going to take a look at one of the most infamous locations to have ever existed in Muskegon, a place where crime, vice, and pleasure all came together. Today, we uncover the history of the Canterbury House, a place with the motto, Everything Goes. Like many lumbering towns, Muskegon, especially in the early days, was a rough and tumble town. Lumberjacks who had spent the entire winter isolated in the northern woods now returned home with a pocket full of money and plenty of steam to burn off. As a result, when spring came, the town ballooned into life, a colorful form where large fights, cussing, drinking, and visiting houses of prostitution or houses of ill repute, as they were more politely known, was the norm. This reverie and debauchery usually lasted a few weeks before the lumberjacks were out of funds and had to find other work. Now while early spring was the heyday of this revelry, as long as the lumberjacks were in town, it did continue year-round, albeit on a smaller scale. To cater to their needs, many saloons and quote-unquote boarding houses sprang up on the eastern side of Muskegon, notably on Ottawa Street and the east end of Western Avenue. The most notorious, though, had to be the Canterbury House, which was rather smartly built in what is today the Jackson Hill neighborhood along today's Marquette Avenue, where at the time was outside of city limits, and thus avoided many regulations and a police presence. The Canterbury House was a very large house with several rooms and parlors. While I could not find a picture of it, possibly because no one deemed it worthy of the effort, I did manage to find some descriptions of it. It was two stories tall, with the lower floor consisting of a bar, a dance hall, orchestra pit, gambling tables, and a pit with bleachers around it that housed boxing, cockfights, dogfights, slagging matches, which was a verbal insult contest, and other events. On the second floor were, of course, bedrooms. The Canterbury House was said to have numbered 36 of these. So large was the house that eventually, when it was later sold, it was divided into two houses. The interior was decorated with white pine paneling, had arched doorways of white pine, and bar rails made of pine at first. However, the wood was replaced with brass shortly as the spiked boots of the lumberjacks chipped away the wood. One quote in the Chronicle describes a typical scene at the Canterbury the morning after the party. Quote, Often daylight found the windows broken and the furniture demolished, and it was a dull evening during the height of the life at the place that a few fights did not take place. Beer glasses and bottles were the more gentle weapon of defense at the place, and usually shelter was sought when the first signs of battle appeared. End quote. The less gentle weapons of defense were knives and guns, of which many bullets were later found embedded in the walls. Such was the draw of the Canterbury that attracted big events and happenings. The nighttime stream of visitors leaving East Muskegon to the house made many a livery driver's evening wages. One driver mentioned that so well did his horse know the destination that he did not need the reins to arrive there. The Canterbury opened up sometime in the late 1860s and continued operating until around 1906. Two women ran the day-to-day operation, a Molly Guard and a Jenny Morgan. These two women would later become associated with other houses of ill repute 
so it is unclear if they ran more than one of them, or if they found employment elsewhere over time. Houses of ill repute were often at odds with each other, trying to get potential clients or potential workers. I did see one example of this pop up in the paper when a young girl of 15 named Belle Stokes, who was described as a vocalist and instrumentalist for the Canterbury, left it for employment at a house called the Red Light. Apparently she didn't feel like she was being treated fairly, and so she left, and then decided to call the police and report the ladies of her former employee for quote unquote disorderly conduct. These ladies in turn called out Belle and some of her new co-workers at the Red Light for the same charge. The Chronicle mentions that when they came before the judge that, quote, the two parties snarled at each other in a lively manner and would have settled the manner there themselves if the judge wasn't present, end quote. While police and politicians did at time make the effort to regulate and abolish houses such as the Canterbury, it was seen that these houses let the men blow off steam and segregated the vice from downtown and more well-to-do areas. Thus, an uneasy truce seemed to prevail. As long as it did not get out of hand, the police kept their distance, but were ready if serious incidents occurred. If crackdowns did occur, someone might spend a few nights in jail or pay a fine, but another week or two, things were back to normal. Prostitutes were the third most group arrested in Muskegon behind day laborers and sailors. However, the law was a little more firm when violent crimes occurred, which often occurred at the Canterbury. One such example I will give comes from July 6, 1882. The Chronicle describes it in a way only an 1880s paper can, so I will read from it, quote, About 9 o'clock last night, a shooting matinee occurred at the Canterbury, which resulted in one man being wounded. It seems that James Lapham was rather noisy in consequence of a liberal amount of benzene that he had been imbibing, and in consequence of that fact, he took the reins of management in his own hands and proceeded to demolish the furniture, etc., in the barroom. End quote. In the end, the bartender would get in the face of Lapham to stop his destruction and a fight started. During the fight, the bartender drew his revolver and shot Lapham in the leg. Both men would be put on trial and convicted for the incident. Such was the common scene at the Canterbury. As mentioned earlier, besides the ladies and the bar, the Canterbury hosted other entertainments that bordered the legal and moral codes of the time. One of the most popular entertainments seems to be cockfighting, in which two roosters were pitted against each other or even sometimes battle royales. The city of Muskegon would outlaw this activity in 1878, but being outside the city's jurisdiction, the Canterbury continued the practice and became well known for it. Their Christmas Eve special one year was a battle between roosters from Grand Rapids and Muskegon even. The most absurd and disgusting case of this though has to be a March 9th, 1898 event when men from Detroit brought 23 birds with them to fight Muskegon roosters at the Canterbury. To bring all these roosters to Muskegon, a special boxcar had to be attached to the train to house them all. The Detroit men were said to have also brought with them a roll of the quote-unquote long green, aka money, and a lot of confidence. A special bookie was also brought in from Grand Rapids to register the bets. In the end, the men from Detroit lost $1,000 in bets, which in today's money is around $30,000. Matchups in boxing were also big news at the Canterbury, with prize fights with $50 to $100 rewards common. Matchups between Muskegon and Grand Rapids boxers were usually a big draw as men came to cheer on their hometown fighter. By the turn of the century, more laws and regulations were being put in place, and efforts to root out houses of ill fame became more serious 
as Muskegon wanted to improve its image. The Canterbury by this point was an older building and eventually went out of use around 1906. The history of the house after this time has almost as much history as it did in its heyday though. It seems somehow that two deeds to the house were transferred to different parties. Both claimed the legal ownership of the building, but tracing back whose deed was the legal correct deed resulted in court cases that continued on for two years. The Chronicle said of these battles, quote, Why anyone should covet this rapidly disintegrating shack for a dwelling place is hard to see. As the memories of the days of cockfights, dogfights, boxing bouts, and slagging matches, as well as grim rumors of unsolved tragedies, hardly render the associations pleasant. End quote. Eventually, the Canterbury would be broken up into two smaller houses and moved from the site. Then, in 1921, what remained of one of those sections was set on fire by some kids and burned down completely, partially erasing a grim reminder of the deeds done there. With that, we will conclude our podcast today on the infamous Canterbury House and our peek at the darker side of Muskegon's history. So it's come on, you bold rivermen, with the heart stout and true. Never depend on a woman, you're beat if you do. And if ever you meet one with the dark chestnut curl, just think of Jack Haggerty and his flat river girl.